This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, October 9th, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. Boiling down the Supreme Court's interpretations of the Constitution to just 100 cases is quite a task. But Josh Blackman and Randy Barnett have made their attempt to do just that in an introduction to constitutional law. 100 Supreme Court cases everyone should know. On Constitution Day, I spoke with Josh Blackman about some of the key cases in that book. How hard is it to narrow down the massive number of cases that the Supreme Court has uh, ruled on in its history to 100? We had to make some tough cuts. Um, we actually didn't start out by trying to get to 100. We said, let's put together the cases everyone should know. And when we finished our list, we had 103. I'm like, oh my God, we have almost 100. So we called it a little bit to get down to 100, which is a good number. But we had to make cuts. So for example, we do not do criminal procedure cases on the fourth, fifth, and sixth amendment. Uh, we don't do a lot of cases involving, you know, federal courts. What is the jurisdiction of the federal courts? We don't do... Um, some cases involving bankruptcy. We don't do cases involving admiralty, that's C cases. We don't do international law. We don't do death penalty. There are a lot of constitutional issues that we just had to cut out. But when we focused on the core of enumerated powers, federalism, the separation of powers, due process, First Amendment, Second Amendment, Fifth Amendment due process, Fifth Amendment takings, we had 100, and we are very happy with this number. Now, uh, one of the cases that uh, jumped out at me, uh, I think I first heard about this case in reading uh, your co-author, Randy Barnett's book, Our Republican Constitution, and that is the case of Prig v. Pennsylvania, uh, one that is not very well appreciated in constitutional law. Dred Scott is far more uh, widely known among uh, among people who study that part of American history, particularly the 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 times of of slavery and that uh, dark chapter in American history. But uh, why Prig v. Pennsylvania? Why is that case so important? Prig is a case that people do not study today. Um, Congress enacted a law called the Fugitive Slave Act, and this law basically made it legal for a slave catcher to travel from, say, Maryland to Pennsylvania, take a person, accuse them of being a slave, and drag them back down south. There was no process. There was no judicial hearing. Any slave catcher could say, that's John Smith over there. He's a slave. He's a runaway. I'm bringing him home. Pennsylvania was an abolitionist state. It opposed slavery. Pennsylvania enacted a law that said, no, no, you can't do that. If you want to drag a person from our community across state lines, you need to go to a judge first. And you get the judge to give you a certificate that this fact is a runaway slave. Um, this case was challenged in the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court ruled that Pennsylvania cannot do this, that the Congress can enact this fugitive slave law, which preempts or trumps the state law. Uh, this is a key case that has salient today for sanctuary cities. Um, Pennsylvania tried to make it harder for the federal government to enforce slavery law in their states. And today, California, for example, is trying to make it tougher for ICE to enforce immigration laws in their states. Um, so a lot of the precedents that the feds are relying on today have a fairly dark history, and they stretch back to a time when those federal power was expanded to enforce slavery 
uh, which most, I think everyone considers a moral sin of the highest order. Uh, so a strong federal government doesn't always do what progressives might want it to do. Yeah. And uh, so are there other applications to, to that case to today? I mean, the federal government would like to enforce all sorts of laws in, in states. Well, sure. Um, this comes up also in the context of marijuana, uh, for example. Um, the the federal government can, under Supreme Court precedent, prohibit locally grown marijuana, but the feds cannot force the states to prohibit it. That is, if California wants to legalize marijuana, um, they can do so, and then the feds can come in and use their own agents, you know, uh, alcohol, tobacco, firearm, whoever they want to send in there, to prohibit the marijuana. Um, but Prig was an early case where the court expanded what Congress can and cannot do. Uh, we often talk about the New Deal as an era where the Supreme Court sanctioned expansion of federal power. Let me tell you, Prig was one of the most broad readings of federal power ever, which I think rivals that endorsing the New Deal. And it wasn't to expand progressive laws like health and safety regulations. It was to basically allow slavery to exist in our nation. Um, very often, states' rights is associated with the South, that the South loves states' rights. No, no, no. In Prig, it was the Pennsylvanias and Massachusetts, the abolition states that favored states' rights. And they were told, no, you can't do this. You have to comply with the federal law. You know, as you're breaking up these cases uh, and as assigning them to their appropriate uh, categories, what as as people uh, read your book and walk away from it and think, I now have a clear understanding of particular provisions, the structure, meaning, purpose, the Constitution as expressed in uh, a lot of these cases, and some for negative reasons, I, I assume, like Prig. Um, well, I guess, what are the big takeaways for uh, this book for people who dig into it? American constitutional law did not develop in a vacuum. It occurred in real time over the course of 200 years. Most people study cases in a silo. They'll study all the First Amendment cases. Then they'll study all the separation of powers cases. Then they'll study the enumerated powers cases. Our book tells this story as a cohesive whole where you go chronologically. And you can see in the same time the court was, you know, expanding slavery, uh, the court may have contracted other elements of, of law. And when the courts were perhaps allowing the states to do one thing, they told Congress to do something else. And you can see how the powers of the government, both state and federal, ebbs and flows over 200 years. We tried hard to tell the story of constitutional law as it has developed for people who don't know it. This is a book for law students, to be sure, but non-lawyers will love it as well. Uh, I think college students and taking government classes will like it. High school students will like it. And for homeschoolers, uh, this is a self-directed course. We have a video library. We have 11 hours of film you can watch. Each case has a video associated with it. And you can basically binge watch con law. We've taken the audio from the Supreme Court. We have photographs. We have maps. These engaging videos will help you learn about constitutional history uh, from the comfort of your own tablet. I am, was chastened just as we uh, began to record here. I said, where is Pierce? And uh, you said, ah, Pierce is in there. Uh, so I didn't, uh, didn't scan closely enough. Uh, why Pierce? Why is that an important case? Um, Pierce v. Society of Sisters involves what's called substantive due process, right? It's the notion that the due process clause of the 14th Amendment protects liberty. And by protecting liberty, courts then have the power to declare constitutional laws that violate the liberty. So if you turn to chapter 33 on page 157, 
you will see. Follow along with us if you have the book in front of which you. Which you should. It's actually backordered on Amazon now. So please order books, supply and demand, send our publisher a signal to print more because they don't print enough. Pierce was a case about public education and private education. Um, Oregon enacted a law that basically made it a crime to send your child to a private school. Now, progressives may love this law, but it has a very dark history. This was designed to be an anti-Catholic law. At the time, most private schools were Catholic. And this basically made it a crime to send your kid to a Catholic school if you were Catholic. Uh, the Supreme Court ruled that this was no good, that the right to direct the upbringing of your children was a fundamental right protected by the Constitution. And as a result, this law was declared unconstitutional. Um, this was at a time when the court had a fairly broad conception of what liberty was, not, you know, uh, the right to health care, the right to, you know, public housing or some such fundamental rights in other countries, but classical rights that, that belong to family and individuals, family to raise your children, to get married, to have children, to procreate. These were rights that were well entrenched and the court protected it in Pierce against Society of Sisters. One of the biggest sections is First Amendment. Uh, how did you break up the uh, the various cases there. What are the most important elements? Because there are so many clauses in the First Amendment and so many different things that that uh, the First Amendment implicates. How'd you break that down? Well, there are there are, there are five major provisions in the First Amendment: just freedom of speech, freedom of exercise, establishment, uh, right of association or assembly, as well as uh, freedom of the press. Um, we had to consolidate a bit. So we have one chapter on freedom of speech and press, one chapter on the establishment clause, and one chapter on the free exercise clause. Um, there's actually surprisingly little case law in the First Amendment before the 1900s. The Supreme Court didn't really touch the First Amendment, didn't have much teeth. But since the early 20th century, we have a lot of cases. Um, in fact, our first chapter focuses on not a case at all, but on an early incident in American history, which was the Alien and Sedition Acts. These were laws enacted in the early years of republic to punish dissent, to punish those who opposed the government, and people were thrown in jail. The Supreme Court was never asked to pass on the constitutionality of this law, but people opposed it. Thomas Jefferson and James Madison wrote these powerful pamphlets and papers and, and resolutions arguing that this regime was unconstitutional. And one of our first major constitutional controversies was resolved in the political process and not in the courts. Uh, to understand free speech, you need to go back to 1800 and how the Sedition Act was enforced. If you're following our politics uh, in the United States today, there is a vibrant controversy, uh, I guess, uh, among Democrats running for president. Uh, one presidential candidate has declared loudly uh, even selling T-shirts to the effect of, hell yes, we're going to take your AR-15. How does that uh, comport with what uh, students will learn in your section on the Second Amendment? Well, in Texas, we say come and take it. Uh, but I suppose that that, that that might be a threat of some sort. Um, we only have two chapters in the Second Amendment, but these are important. The Supreme Court said almost nothing about the right to bear arms throughout its 200 years. And it wasn't until 2008 in a case called District of Columbia versus Heller that the Supreme Court actually ruled the Second Amendment means something significant. It means that there's a right for people to bear arms, not in militia service. Um, we have a very strong Cato connection. The case was actually brought in large part by Robert Levy, who is a, a bigwig here at Cato. And to tell the story, we've included in our video presentation oral argument 
of Justice Scalia grilling Alan Gura, another Cato affiliated lawyer, who argued the case. And eventually the court ruled that the Second Amendment protects an individual right. And then we have the follow-up case from 2010, McDonald v. City of Chicago. Uh, this was another very Cato case about whether the 14th Amendment protects the right to bear arms. Again, Alan Gura and Bob Levy uh, were behind this case. Uh, this case also presented the concept of the privileges or immunities clause of the 14th Amendment, this other provision that was supposed to at least protect substantive rights like the right to bear arms. Um, only Justice Thomas went along with that argument. He found that the Second Amendment was a fundamental right protected by privileges or immunities, and Justice Scalia and others did not. So you have these two major Second Amendment cases that don't say too much. Uh, even though we only have 100, at some point we'll have to expand it, I think, and hopefully we get another good Second Amendment case to add to the roster. Josh Blackman is co-author of An Introduction to Constitutional Law, 100 Supreme Court Cases Everyone Should Know. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 